Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. This is Marcel Reed inviting you to the TS Radio Network. The TS Radio Network. Tonight's show will be hosted by Dr. David Moskowitz, and he has been hosting a show for the last few weeks. Of course, this is Marty Oakley's network, which is always dedicated to bringing us new, cutting information, and exploring um, topics we haven't often explored. Tonight's uh, program, hosted by Dr. Moskowitz, with his guests, Dr. Goldman, Ram Nanatur, and Marlene Lutz. Dr. Moskowitz, are you there? Hi. Hi, Marcel. Hi. Can you hear me? I can hear you perfectly. Can you hear me? Yes. I've been having a little trouble here tonight. Okay. Well, thank you so much for hosting this program. It will be about something I think people will be very interested in. And it's gene therapy, but more importantly, it's how regular people can access gene therapy. So I'll turn the program over to you now. So let me just make sure um, my colleague, Dr. Goldman, and my office manager, Marilyn Lutz, are able to speak as well. Are you there, comrade? They may have to press pound one to be yes. able to speak. Yes. They will. Okay. I believe I Hello, David. You. Richard. Hi. Good good evening. This is Dr. Goldman. Hi, David. Marlene, are you there with us? You just have to push pound and then one to, to get on the microphone. We, of course, invite comments from the audience as uh, the discussion starts up. Marlene, we'll look forward to having you join us as soon as you can. But for now, I would like to lay out kind of a rough outline of what we'd like to talk about. We all three work in the same medical office, an office that Dr. Goldman began decades ago, probably 30 years ago, Richard, if I'm not mistaken. Hey, give or take a decade, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, not, that, not that we're old. We're young in spirit. But uh, Dr. Goldman has, has uh, matured with his practice, and his patients are now in their 80s, I know, because I've just been working there a few weeks. And I'm meeting people in their late 80s and, and 90s uh, who Dr. Goldman has kept alive and in good shape. 
all this time. And um, and what we'd like offer them is the benefits of genomics, which a lot of people around the world are are trying to bring into the clinic, but which we are in a unique position um, to to uh, actually accomplish because I think we've got all the pieces of um, of the puzzle, and and it needn't be as complicated, I think, as um, as most people expect it to be. So it, there are a few pieces that are needed. Number one, you have to have patience, which Dr. Goldman has plenty of, something like 5,000, right? Approximately. Um, you have to have um, uh, a, a way to get their DNA, and the sequencing companies now have these little kits that they'll send out, a lot like a Cologuard uh, box for your poop, except these are uh, cheek swabs that are basically just Q-tips that you rub on the inside of your cheek and then drop into a little uh, plastic tube with liquid in it to preserve the cheek, swell, uh, cheek cells, cheek epithelial cells, and their DNA. Then they go to the factory where they do the sequencing, and a couple months later, um, the patient gets their genome. So now we have to talk about two other items. Um, who's going to pay for it? And uh, people are already spending out-of-pocket money to buy the, their own genome. Um, but it looks like Medicare might actually have a code to pay for it, uh, so-called CPT codes, um, which would mean that you didn't, you wouldn't have to be rich. You wouldn't have to have $249 of spare money in your pocket to be able to afford one of these genomes. Um, you could actually bill Medicare for it. All we'd have to do, though, is show to Medicare that it was useful and that it would benefit patient care, um, which um, I don't think would be that hard to show them more about that. Um, so we've got the patients, we've got their genome. Um, somehow uh, they will get paid for. Um, the next thing is where do you store these genomes? It's a lot of, it's a huge file of information, and um, it's like 3.3 billion letters. And so we need IT, uh, computer people, to help us. All these people uh, we actually have in our company, um, but but the genome actually could be stored in a, you know, in a bioinformatics company that was helping us out. We could anonymize the samples, and then the genomes could be uh, stored on a server in Slovakia, for example, or Romania uh, by the bioinformatics company that was helping us. 
Um, so, so that issue is solvable. And then the final issue is uh, getting informed consent from the patient, explaining to them what we think we can do, like find genes that cause their disease, dementia or cancer, and um, getting their permission to do the cheek swab and send it off to be sequenced. I don't think we would need much more permission than that because it's it's really, as long as we anonymize the samples, um, then there's no risk to the patient. There's only uh, upside benefit. And, um, and we wouldn't be taking in federal dollars or a grant and um, so I don't know. What do you think? Marlene, are you on the phone yet? No, Marlene. So Richard, uh, what does like Marlene, a... I'm sorry, Pardon? could you give me her first three uh, digits of her phone number? Ah, good question. Richard, do you happen to have her phone number? Um I do. Give me a second. I can certainly get it for us. Great. Well, Marcel, while Richard's getting Marlene's phone number. Well, I have several questions. You have it? 954-579-954-579-579. I won't give the rest. Uh, on public yeah, information. No. No, well, you can not. because because patients will be calling Marlene to try to get into our office, I'm sure. <laughs> so, Marcel, well, you said you had a few questions. Here are several questions I have, have to ask. Um, one is, so you're saying that this specific therapy is available now through Medicare or Medicaid? I'm saying that um, at least the payment for it is already being used by Medicare for cancer patients. So they get their, they get their tumor sequence. Uh, there are maybe half a dozen CPT codes, which is Medicare requires to be able mm-hmm. to pay for something. Mm-hmm. And we would just have to, um, I think, have a discussion with Medicare and and convince them that, uh, that we could benefit patients. I mean, it, it would be nice to have an example or two, but I can already give you an example. So... <laughs> Dr. Goldman's a cardiologist, and um, he knows about TAVRs, about um, catheter-delivered aortic valve replacements. I had to have one a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, because my aortic valve calcified over and closed down. The hole in the aortic valve got so small that my heart couldn't push blood through, and I got really short of breath. 
And nowadays, they can change the valve over um, in, you know, in a 30-minute procedure. They used to they used to have to do open heart surgery and it would take months to get back. Uh, but with this new uh, catheter based procedure, I was back at, I was out of the hospital in 24 hours and back at work a few days later. So it's a marvelous advance in medicine. I had no idea why my valve calcified and it's actually, I don't think it's known. Is it Richard? Why? Valves necessarily calcify? Uh, no, it, it is really unclear why some people get the, the main heart valve called the aortic valve, why it calcifies early in life versus uh, we see lots of valve patients in their 80s and 90s and 95 where the valve functions normally. And I wish we had a way to predict earlier in life and earlier in decades which patients may be at increased risk. That would be of benefit to uh, lots of populations of our patients. So in my particular case, I, um, I, I never actually knew why my valve was calcifying. It came as a complete shock to me. A very good primary care doctor picked up my heart murmur, Dr. Scott Oxenhandler at Memorial, uh, in Hollywood, and to my shock, sure enough, I had these big valve uh, calcifications on my aortic valve, and um, eventually I got this TAVR, and then I got my whole genome sequence, and um, and while I was getting the TAVR, they do uh, some CAT scans of your heart and your abdomen to make sure that the valve is the new valve is going to fit in your heart in the the orifice that the aorta has in it that when it comes out of the heart and um the the cat scan happened to pick up uh the top of my pelvic bone and one side of my pelvic bone was uh very dense on and actually was Paget's disease of the bone which is kind of an overgrowth situation where you're, you make too much bone. And it, it can be patchy, doesn't have to affect your entire skeleton. But I think all the calcium that came, uh, you know, that eventually uh, calcified my valve, I think all the growth factors and the, and the calcium actually may have come from my uh, Paget's disease, which I never knew I had. Then nebula genomics that had done my whole genome sequence published a report on Paget's disease, and there were only three genes involved, and I had a double mutation in one of them and a single mutation in the second. So, um, if you know, if if I'd um, known any better, I could have been diagnosed with early Paget's disease when I was younger, you know, much younger, and taken the the drug, which is just uh, Fosamax, to suppress it. It's the same drug that people take if they have osteoporosis. And I might never have gotten my aortic stenosis 
calcified aortic valve, and I might never have needed the surgery, which probably would have been a better idea because the valve, the new valve only lasts seven to ten years. They've only been around for a decade or so. Nobody knows exactly how long they last, and you don't get that many redos. Um, and so I'm not looking forward to, um, you know, having to get a second or even a third valve um, and, and, and being out of luck because, because the, there won't be any new ones that fit. So I wish I didn't have the problem in the first place. Anyway, genomics, I think, can help avoid problems like that. No, even though the medical technology is brilliant, it's better not to get the disease in the first place. And genomics can help us do that. And when you use um, genomics or, or any um, gene therapy, does it increase the outcome? So if you already have the illness and, and you don't really know what gene is affecting it, does I don't know what they call this gene mapping. I don't know the right term for it. Um, I think gene, gene mapping is probably better than gene therapy. And okay. Just to be clear about this, gene therapy suggests that you're changing the gene. You're, like, turning it off or replacing it with a better mm -hmm. version. And mm -hmm. the problem with gene therapy is that you're doing it, like, forever for the lifetime of that person. And there's some people who are actually talking about germline gene therapy for diseases that recur, like um, Huntington's disease or sickle cell or cystic fibrosis or something like that. The problem with germline gene therapy is you're changing the gene, not just in that person, but in all their offspring for the rest of recorded time. And if you make a mistake, um, it's going to be visited upon all their descendants, which strikes me as extremely irresponsible. So I am dead set against gene therapy. There's some genes that look impossible to correct, like Duchenne's muscular dystrophy or the protein that mutated and, and doesn't exist is humongous. It's like 3,000 amino acids. And cystic fibrosis, where the chloride channel is, you know, maybe 1,700 amino acids, also a giant protein. But um, I am more interested in trying to repurpose small molecule, small molecular weight drugs to try to get more function out of the pathway uh, that's involved in the in the giant protein, giant mutant protein. So, for example, sickle cell, where there's um, a mutation in uh, in one of the hemoglobin chains, which has been known since 1946. Um, they're seriously talking about gene therapy for uh, sickle cell kids. But um, I've, um, Mike Williams had a patient who we already used an ACE inhibitor in Mavic, and we she used to use four Vicodins a day. She was in her middle age, in her 40s, in Sacramento. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and we we gave her a small dose of Mavic because her blood pressure was normal and the ACE inhibitor, Trangolopril, or Mavic is a brand name, you know, would lower it too low if we gave her too big a dose. Anyway, it took away all her pain except for the cold month of December in Sacramento. So she went back to Vicodin for December. But, you know, you couldn't get that good of a result with gene therapy, and it would be much more dangerous. And if you made a mistake, she'd be stuck with it. And actually, there are a bunch of controls who've already died uh, after getting adeno-associated virus to deliver genes into their liver. I mean, there was a, an 18 or 19-year-old in Britain, of, you know, maybe a decade ago, who died unexpectedly. It's, um, I think it's to be avoided, gene therapy. On the other hand, gene mapping, uh, which is what we're talking about doing for our office, uh, tells you what genes are involved in the disease pathway. The, there may only be one pathway, and so you might not have to genotype every single person to find out what's wrong. Um, if they have Alzheimer's and we have already figured out the genes in the pathway, then maybe just inhibiting the genes uh, in the pathway might help a particular patient. And if it doesn't help that particular patient, maybe then it would be worthwhile to do their whole genome sequence and see what other mutations they might have. I, I see someone else. I see someone else, someone else might have a question. 856, Lawrence. Sorry. Somebody open my front door. We keep a very tight ship here in Hollywood. They could be calling from outer space somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They could be. Um, Uh, Okay. I have someone else on the line to ask a question. Very good. Lawrence? He was very interested in this. I think everyone is that I've spoken to about it. Um, yeah. You must give me. Yes, I'm. I'm here, uh, Marcel. Okay. Okay. Um, Lawrence. Um, so this is uh, David Moskowitz. You guys, Dr. Moskowitz. You've actually, I believe, met through the summit, and on the line with him is Dr. Goldman. Uh, one is a cardiologist and. Dr. Goldman's a cardiologist, and Dr. Moskowitz is a nephrologist. Um, what is the question you have? Well, what I would like to know, seeing that uh, I work very closely with uh, black farmers who are losing their land and, as a result, have uh, been under uh, undue stress and we know that the pressures that and the events of losing their land, the threat of losing their land, uh, has been a 
a problem for um, many years for black farmers ever since the turn of the century and most definitely after the New Deal. That being said, many farmers are suffering and dying much earlier than I would say they should because of the distress and the burden that the racism at the U.S. Department of Agriculture has put on them. Uh, my question is, uh, how do we get to a segment of society such as black farmers uh, and have them aware, because they are in rural America, uh, they don't, they don't, they're not in New York City or Washington, D.C. or New York City. How do we go about making sure that uh, our black farmers and other minorities are reached with this very uh, advanced uh, theory for saving lives? That's my question. That's my question. Well, that is a terrific question. Um, we're basically talking about rural health. And um, the beauty of genomics of preventing disease is that um, it's, it's, it's perfect for rural health because all you have to do is hear about it um, over the radio, on your computer. I mean, I, I think, would you say, Lawrence, that most people, that most black farmers have access to the World Wide Web, that they have Wi-Fi? Well, many, that's another problem. Uh, many black farmers don't have and are connected uh, to the same uh, computers and, and information that we in urban America uh, take for granted. Many black farmers are in areas that don't have Wi-Fi. Um, and that's one of the reasons why the communication and the channel by which to get to doctors and get this advanced uh, knowledge uh, to the doctors and to uh, farmers and other minorities. That is the problem. Um, so are you telling me that the, the schools where the kids are going don't have computers? are not teaching the kids how to use them? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that uh, for black farmers and adults, uh, 60, 70, and 80 years old, uh, uh, they're not sophisticated uh, as as their grandkids. So they don't don't have access to the same informational resources that well, that we hmm. we are having an experience in urban America. Well, I I really think that the grandkids uh, should be saving their grandparents in the urban environment just as much as in the rural environment. Because the urban because because um, you know young teenagers now all seem to know how to use cell phones and. Um, and probably computers too, and uh, 
So if they could just get their grandparents to tune in, they'd be saving their lives. I I also think that the message should be direct to consumer. I mean, I think shows like this, podcasts like this, um, are the kind of things that once your grandchild, you know, brings it up on the on their cell phone, that you could listen to, and then you'd know uh, that if you had kidney failure, you could contact me, or if you had heart disease, you could contact Dr. Goldman, um, or if you just wanted to talk to the company, you could contact Marlene on their cell phone. Um, and so I, I think it is going to be word of mouth, but I think the grandchildren are going to have to be key to to getting the older folks. I mean, nobody knows how to use the internet like young people, and and they've got to clue in their grandparents if they want them to stay alive, which they do. I mean, grandkids are really great about trying to protect their grandparents, and it is going to be a matter of life and death to know this stuff. I mean, I know for dialysis, if you don't know that it's preventable, then you go on the machine, you're dead in two years. We're still trying to get word out about that. Eventually, it it will become known. But until then. We have another person on the line. Um, But I would like to let you know that this podcast will be available Um, within a half hour of it ending, and it's available on all of the major uh, platforms, um, from Apple to Spotify to just about any platform you name, this podcast will be available. So you can pull it down and play it for people who um, you might want to send it to in the future. So it will only take a half hour. Um, I think we have... um, Wayman Henson on. Are you on, Wayman? Hello? Okay. I don't know. There's someone on 954821. Hello? Okay. So do you have other questions for the for the Dr. Lawrence, the doctor? Well, uh, y- yes, um, I, I heard his answer, and I've been thinking mm-hmm. ever since. Um, I think it's fine to say that it's going to be left up to the grandkids. Um, many of the grandkids are not interested in the same kinds of uh, subject matter that we're talking about here. So uh, it has to be some other kind of method that is going and a program and a strategy to make sure that the kind of information that you uh, are speaking of uh, gets to uh, rural America and work with groups and organizations, uh, small colleges and universities, and these extension offices and the agencies that have the responsibility uh, for the destiny uh, 
of black farmers to aid in making sure this information gets to them. Uh, that so I'm I'm left with uh, a question in my mind, unless there's some kind of effort and some kind of initiative uh, generated on a national level to ensure that this kind of information gets out to rural America. We're still having problems with getting Internet to rural America, much less the kind of information that you're speaking of. So we have, we have a problem that is much bigger than, than just the, condition, the medical condition itself and the cure. It, it, we are talking about setting up all together a system and a network that's needed to make sure this information gets to rural America and to the people that need it around the country. Oh, I, I understand that. I believe that was what the infrastructure bill was supposed to be addressing, um, rural connectivity with the Internet, because it's like the Tennessee Electric Act. You know, in the middle of the country, there wasn't electricity. Uh, in the, a lot of the center of the country, there isn't uh, access to Internet. Um, but right now, I think it's really important that we find out that, that this exists. I actually didn't know about this. And I was so happy when uh, Dr. Moskowitz told me that he had someone, Marlene, who could come on who could explain how just regular people could access it. Because once they know about it, if, if this is an extremely expensive therapy, they can't get it. But he said that he and Dr. Goldman both agreed that Medicare will pay for some of this. And specifically, I think, with the six different types of cancer, isn't that what you just said? Right. We're, we're aiming to have our cancer prediction test yes. available uh, within 12 months. And, um, for, and, and I can pretty much guarantee that Medicare will pay for it. I mean, that is groundbreaking news. It's going to be good. We didn't know it existed. I mean, we, I did not know this existed. So from it not existing to just regular people being able to access it, that's amazing. It's going to be good. And But let me tell you about dialysis. Um, okay. You know, 100,000 100, Americans go on dialysis every year, 100,000 Americans die after being on dialysis for two or three years. I've had a, a simple, safe, cheap way to prevent it for 30 years, and nobody knows, not in the cities and not in the countryside. But all it would take, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, because Lawrence, the agencies, and there are a ton of them, have completely failed me on getting the word out. All they would have to do is a public service announcement. And you name it, they've, they've you know, uh, not done their job. Um, so it, it has to be, it has to be something other than what you'd expect. And, and this is what I've come up with. High school students, um, when they take biology, have to do 
you know, some of them are thinking of becoming nurses. And most biology teachers have them check each other's blood pressure. I mean, it's a common thing to do. And all you'd have to do is um, incorporate into high school biology classes that, um, that not only do you take your classmates' blood pressure, but you also go home and check all your relatives' blood pressure. And anybody with a high blood pressure gets referred to a company like ours that Dr. Goldman and I work at. Um, and we can take care of them by telehealth. Um, and especially we can uh, keep them off dialysis. And the thing is that high school students still love their grandparents. The grandparents are still alive. Uh, parents are still alive. Their siblings are still alive. And there is no real public health infrastructure in our country anymore. It, it maybe existed in the past, but not, and maybe during the polio epidemics in the early 50s when I was a kid, but it sure hasn't existed any time since then. And I think we have to do this essentially ourselves. Um, and uh, the strongest unit in the country is the family unit. And I think the way to save black farmers is to get their grandkids to measure their blood pressure and and use their cell phone to interact with a telemedicine company like ours. I think that would solve the problem. We wouldn't have to wait for the infrastructure bill to work its way through the country. That makes sense. I don't. I don't believe those infrastructure bills ever do help anybody. They might help the big contractors and donors, but they're not going to help the average black farmer in Mississippi. Or reservation. I mean, this is a very oh, God, broad... Oh, God help the reservation. Yeah, so it's not going to help any of them. But what I would love to talk about just a moment is the different illnesses that this will impact. I was reading earlier for the last couple of days about various illnesses that this has been shown to work with. One is blindness, um, hemophiliacs, uh, fat metabolism, cancer, sickle cell anemia. I mean, this is just so broad. You've been reading the wrong stuff, Marcel. You've been reading about genes. You've been reading gene therapy hype. Throw oh, all the garbage okay. out. Well, no. I read it at the National Institute of Health. Exactly. They're the main purveyors of this trash. They're the ones oh. who are already funding gene therapy experiments. They don't, they're ignorant of the medical literature. I published a paper in 2007 with Mike Williams showing that gene therapy is unnecessary for sickle cell. But there have already been two or three papers in the New England Journal about gene therapy for sickle cell. And the NIH is the one giving the money for all these gene therapy trials. It is criminal. Well, then explain it to me, because I thought that that was a trusted source. The NIH since the 60s, 
and Dr. Goldman can back me up on this or not, as he has a PhD and I don't, the NIH stopped doing clinical research in the 1960s. At that point, everything became mechanism-based, and you had to work in model systems like mice or rats or dogs or pigs, and you couldn't really do human clinical research anymore. They left all that to the pharmaceutical companies. The pharmaceutical companies have been quietly imploding. Pfizer's been buying them all up, so has Merck. There were, you know, dozens of pharma companies in the 70s, and now there are only a few, you know, a few left, really. And they don't do research anymore. And so there's this huge vacuum of, in clinical research, which nobody does, which is ideal for the system because it's a status quo. It's an anti-innovative system that uh, tries to make more money rather than less and tries to preserve disease rather than prevent it. And the gene therapy stuff is never going to work. It's not a public health solution. Look at the CAR-T um, immuno-oncology solution, and they cost 300 grand per person. That is not a public health solution. Imagine a black farmer getting access to a CAR-T uh, solution for his metastatic you know, lung cancer. It ain't going to happen. There has to be cheaper... Um, and more common sense public health approaches. Gene therapy is not safe for human beings. It may be safe for mice. It is not safe. I mean, we've already broached one uh, one barrier with this mRNA vaccine business over the last few years. That uh, that vaccine has not been tested long term for safety. And, um, but, you know, earn billions and billions of dollars, maybe trillions, for the few companies that, uh, that were behind it. And now they're pushing right into gene therapy, uh, and, and also backed by the NIH up to the hilt with complete disregard to, to clinical safety. I'd be interested, Dr. Goldman, on your thoughts. Well, uh, you know, the one thing that I'm hearing is it sounds very sexy and simple to think that gene therapy by just switching one nucleotide on to off or off to on is going to solve a myriad of different diseases and illnesses. But unfortunately, it's, it's a much more complex uh, system and the human body is much more complex uh, because it's not only focused on on specific genes, but genes are then uh, encoded to produce certain proteins. And it's a combination of people need to understand it's a combination of genes, the gene expression, and the proteins surrounding them that. Um, that are the mechanisms that uh, both protect the body and when they're flawed, cause uh, different illnesses. So as Dr. Moskowitz was, was telling us, just a, a specific gene therapy is, sounds very sexy and hot, 
but it's a, a simplistic approach and may not be uh, really where uh, the whole field of genomics is, is headed in the future. Would you explain the difference between gene therapy and genomics? The names are so similar. Well, and genomics, I think it's, yeah. yeah, genomics refers to anything to do with the genome. Um, gene therapy is a specific approach uh, to treatment given, given that you're working in the field of genomics. So genomics is like the English language, and um, gene therapy is like a sonnet. Okay. Okay. I do understand the difference now because they seem to almost interchangeable. Well, it's, uh, you know, that's propaganda for you. <laughs> yes, that is propaganda for you. I do agree. So, so part, of, um, part of the problem, Marcel, is, in conclusion, is that for a long time, um, the NIH, you know, I, I said, got out of clinical research. And mm -hmm. um, you were only smart if you dealt with uh, roundworms or fruit flies or mice, model systems. And mm -hmm. if you took care of patients, you were just a dumb physician. So you've got these people who've been controlling the money uh, in this country for 60 years now who are very secure in their position. Nobody can challenge them. Nobody can even criticize them lest they lose their funding. So these people have sinecures, are more secure than any dictator in any country in the world. And, um, and so whatever they say goes. And if they've decided in their infinite wisdom that gene therapy is, is what's next, so it shall be, just as they did with the Moderna. Um, and the BioNTech uh, uh, coronavirus 2 vaccine, which made no public health sense whatsoever because you don't chase after a highly mutable virus with a vaccine, which is always going to be several years behind and even further behind in terms of safety testing. Yet that was what, the, what Fauci had all decided to do. And we are still reaping the, the disasters of that decision. So the problem is that genomics started out as um, the plaything of, of the Illuminati, let's say, of the NIH. But in fact, the people who should be running it are clinicians like me and Dr. Goldman. And that's how genomics is going to get, you know, most complete clinical expression. And I actually think um, that our entire research enterprise needs to be overturned in the U.S. I think the intramural NIH should be abandoned, just those buildings turned into apartment houses. And, um, and I think more clinical-oriented uh, research should be done. I think I would turn it over to the VA and just um, you know, disband the NIH because it's been useless for the last 60 years. 
But now I'm, I'm listening to you talk about the longevity of Dr. Goldman's patients. They're in pretty good shape, you say, and they're in their late 80s and, and mid-90s. Um, well, I'm assuming that he, he cares very, very much about his patients, and he's willing to, um, to do anything. He's a cardiologist who actually does probably more primary care than cardiology. And, and so he'll have endless patience with, um, you know, tweaking their medicine. And that's what's kept people alive. He's been on the phone with them. You know, he never lets time go by between when they need him and when he responds. And he's just endlessly attentive to them. And that's what's kept them alive. You know, not gene therapy, not NIH grants, but good old-fashioned clinical medicine. Plus, he's a really smart doctor. Well, yeah. I, if, if I knew him, if I knew Dr. Goldman better, I would tease him and say, Dr. Doctor. Um, but, yeah. yeah. <laughs> His patients call him Dr. Doctor. Okay. I read, I was reading part of the CV over and I said, I wonder should I call him doctor or doctor doctor? Um, anyway, I, I want to thank you for letting us know this. Lawrence is passionate. I'm passionate. I think all of us are passionate no matter how we display it because we see such inequality. It's just everywhere. And Mm -hmm. I was so interested in this being an answer. I wasn't even interested in it being a quick answer. I just wanted it to be something that people could access that would help them. Of course, I've worked on this this um, problem with you and and uh, end stage renal disease for a while now. We know from you how it impacts people and from people who've been on the machine. Um, we know the population that it attacks. We know how how quickly. Uh, People die after getting on the machine. We're, we're aware of that. I don't think there are 20 people I can speak to that have not had someone on the machine that has not passed. So we're very aware of it. And that's why I'm so interested in you doing this show and making this information available to people. Um, we have quite a few people here on the board, but they don't have their hands up to be called on. And I think that is really because they don't know how to approach this. They don't know what to say that that you would be able to answer. I think a lot of them, like me, probably did a little of very light research um, and saw all of these things that they said gene therapy could cure, and they didn't know the difference between gene therapy and genomics. They just didn't know the same way that I did. So what you're telling us is that this is propaganda at NIH when it comes to gene therapy and this list of things that it can heal fairly quickly and simply. Sure am. Um, what NIH is doing already now with sickle cell 
makes all the screening programs of the 70s look like mm-hmm. um, like child's play. Mm-hmm. They're actually making permanent changes in a person's DNA, and, you know, to, and they haven't read the literature, which is the first requirement for anybody with an MD. They have to know the literature. You, you lose your state license if you're not acquainted with the literature. That's the whole point of continuing medical education. Well, Leonidas has issued grants to to do gene therapy on sicklers without being aware of the medical literature. So considering that, and we're just an average person, um, how do you gather information about your illnesses? If you can't go to a source like NIH, where can you actually go? Well, um, actually Googling your disease. If you Google sickle cell, my paper will come up from 2007. Yeah, but I meant in in total, if you have anything wrong with you, I would, you everybody, know. Everybody uses Dr. Google. Okay. But, so there is no I mean, one source. So the idea is you, you have to get into the media. Once you're in the media, Google will pick you up. So the media has a key... Um, gatekeeping function. So far, the media has not said a word, not breathed a word about a cure for dialysis. The media is very much the lackey of uh, of the NIH and the academic medical elite. So if, if somebody burps at UCSF and comes up with an artificial kidney, then it's in a hundred journal, a hundred newspapers say no dialysis required. You can walk around with your artificial kidney like it's a little purse on your on your belt. I mean it's garbage. Of course you're you're dialyzing. Dialysis hasn't been eliminated because you're using a, a portable dialysis machine, and it makes no clinical sense to be hooked up you know, to a machine that could come unhooked, you know, if you just sat wrong on a chair. That's nonsense. On the other hand, they they don't publish anything about preventing dialysis in the first place and keeping it before you descend into this hell of dialysis and transplant, dialysis and transplant, which always ends badly. So I, I think the media is to be blamed for their complete um, ignorance of public health and their blind obedience to uh, to these propagandizers. Well, um, I want to thank you, Dr. Goldman. I want to thank you, um, Dr. Moskowitz. Lawrence, I want to thank you for your passion and your continued uh, fighting for people at the edges. I want to thank the audience. And I want to say that here at TS Radio, we will continue to air Dr. Moskowitz. We will continue to put these podcasts out. 
that that have a kernel left, absolute truth in them. You don't have to question it. He'll tell you the good. He'll tell you the bad. He'll bring on people who can explain these systems to you. Um, I look forward to our next program, which will be next month. It is the third Thursday of every month here on TS Radio. And I will speak to you offline, uh, Dr. Moskowitz, about other um, outlets that you may be able to go to. I've helped Lomas with that in the past. Anyway, thank you all for listening to tonight's edition of TS Radio. Tonight's host and every Thursday night will be Dr. Moskowitz, who will always be telling us about the medical revolution. Thank you very much. I look forward to speaking to you again. Take care. Thank you, Marcel.